You are listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sam, and uh, if we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, good morning. So good to see you this morning and to be with you on this beautiful sunny, sunny Sunday morning, hey? The weather this weekend has just been unbelievable. Um, one of the things I'm most excited about as our world starts to open up more and more post-pandemic is the ability to travel. Anybody else? I, I love to travel. Actually, my family and I just got back from a week in Mexico, which was quite amazing. Not long before that, I got to go to England. But I absolutely love exploring new cities. And uh, actually, even before I came to CA to serve here as a pastor, I used to work at a Bible college in Surrey. And a big part of my job at that time was to travel, was to go to different cities and to, to, to promote the college. And so I got to go to some pretty cool places. I got to go all across North America um, in in uh, the States, checked out Dallas and Nashville and Los Angeles. There was one year that I actually even got to go to Honolulu as part of a work trip, which just doesn't even feel fair. And then all across Canada, traveled from here, from Vancouver to Montreal to Halifax and kind of everywhere in between. And, and one of the things I love most about checking out new cities is, is, is checking out the different cultures that make up a city with a unique food and the architecture and the music and the traditions and you know, whether I travel by myself or most often with my wife, Jorley, and now we often, almost always, actually always, travel with our two little girls. Um, I, I love, you know, we're not so interested in kind of going to the typical tourist spots where, you know, there's your typical malls with the fast fashion and food courts and the chain restaurants. We want to go to where the locals go. We want to eat what they eat and explore what they, what they do and, and live a day or two, even if it's just 24 hours to kind of live it in the life of the people who live there from their vantage point. While we have been in a series, as you see on the screen, uh, over this last, what, eight or ten weeks, eight weeks, something like that, in a series called God of All Things. I think today's actually the final sermon in this series. And we've been looking at all sorts of different things. We've been looking at stuff. We've been looking at matter. And we've been asking the question, what do these things teach us about the world that we live in? But then also, what do they teach us about the God who made them? And we've looked at all sorts of fun stuff. We looked at bacon, which was one of my favorites. <laughs> Partially because I love bacon, the other reason because I preached the message. Uh, but, but we looked at pigs, and, and we, looked at, um, we looked at, what else did we look at? I wrote it down here. Somebody tell me. Shout it out. Dust. Dust. We looked at, what else? Yeah. Galaxies. Yeah. Oceans. Rainbows. Rainbows. So all sorts, of, all sorts of interesting, different stuff. Today, the, the thing that we're going to explore is cities. And, and maybe you're thinking, cities? I thought this was a series about things that God has made. God didn't make cities. He made, he made trees and grass and, and, and creation and beauty. If anything, God's creation has been disrupted by these concrete jungles we call cities. Uh, but a number of scholars and, and, and Bible teachers would argue that, that the building and cultivating of cities wasn't man's idea. It wasn't just something that humans came up with, but, but, and it certainly wasn't a result of the fall, but instead that the building of cities was this critical part of God's plan for creation, for human flourishing from the very beginning of time. And not only that, but in Revelation chapter 22, which is at the very end of Scripture, at the very end of the story, 
we see that God's ultimate goal for his people, the age to come, our future reality, it isn't harps, playing harps, sitting in clouds with unlimited Philadelphia cream cheese. (laughs) Although cream cheese on top does not sound that bad to me. But that's not the picture we see in scripture. Instead, what we see is, 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 is a city. It's the, the painting of this picture of a city that's to come. More on that later. But as we get started, I, I wanted to go all the way back to the beginning of the story and, and look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If you have a Bible, you can turn there right now. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And for context, the setting of these verses takes place kind of midway through or even closer to the tail end of the creation account in scripture. So God has just made the light and the sky, the water and dry land, the sun, moon, and stars, the animals, the fish. And then in verse 26, this is what it says. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, what does this passage of scripture have to do with cities? Well, we're going to get there, I promise. But I want to start by pointing out two really important and I think relevant ideas that come from this text that will sort of help us to kind of lay out a a theology of cities. The first is this phrase, the image of God. The writer of Genesis, he repeats this phrase, the image of God, over and over again, three times in these few short verses that we just read. And what any historian or or Bible scholar will tell you is that in in, in the early, in the ancient days, when when a writer wanted you to get something, to really understand something, they wouldn't underline it or italicize it or all bold or caps uh, like we maybe would today, but instead they would just repeat it over and over again. So you knew, okay, this is the most important kind of theme or phrase or idea in these verses. And so I think it's safe to say that, that, that maybe central to creating humanity, key to their identity, is that they're image bearers of God, that they're made in his image, as verse 26 says, that that they're made after his likeness. So I think a relevant question to to ask is, well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God, or what does it mean to be in his likeness? Well, generations of readers have suggested all sorts of options and and ideas and kind of multifaceted understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God, but one thing that's abundantly clear in Genesis chapter 1 is summed up in the first five words of Genesis chapter one, of the very beginning of scripture. In the beginning, God created. And there's splashes of all sorts of other themes throughout Genesis one and the rest of scripture, but one thing that is unmistakable is God's purposeful and energetic desire to create. And so to be made in the image of God is to reflect this creative character of God. The second thing I want us to see from that passage in Genesis chapter one, I want us to catch this word dominion, to let them have dominion, it says. And it comes from the Hebrew word radah. The NIV translates that same word as to rule. It's kind of this kingly sort of language. One Hebrew scholar translated that kind of phrase that we read as to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. I love that, I love that translation. Actively partnering with God in taking the world somewhere. 
Because it's easy to read that section of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where God creates man and puts him in charge of the garden. To hear that assignment to kind of care for the earth is as almost like God saying this. Okay, Adam, I've laid out this beautiful garden. I've thought about it carefully. I like the way it is. Just trim the hedges, water the petunias. Don't screw anything up. I like it just the way it is. But nothing could be further from, from the truth and, and from what God is telling Adam here. Adam's assignment is so much more than weeding and lawn maintenance, although I'm sure there was a need for some of that from time to time. But it's so much bigger. God was inviting humans to join him in his creative work, to create and shape culture, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And and Tim Keller says it like this. He says, he was directing them to build a God-honoring civilization, to bring forth the riches that God put into creation by developing science and art and architecture human civilization. And so all of that is wrapped up in Genesis chapter 1. Humans are made as image bearers of God, commissioned to kind of rule over the earth. And in in the chapters that follow Genesis chapter 1, we see that partnership starting to take shape. As as God places Adam in the garden and and he he tells him to, to cultivate it, to take the raw materials of the garden, the wood from the trees, the plants, the water, the gold, the onyx that God has provided and to make something of it. In other words, to take the raw materials of the garden and to turn them into a garden-like city. And the first culture-shaping activity that God gives to Adam is to name the animals. I always think this is kind of like a a funny scene in scripture. Like, I wonder if once God delegated this to Adam, if he immediately kind of had second thoughts about whether he should have or not. This last week, I looked at some of the craziest names, the funniest names of of animals in the animal kingdom. Have you ever heard of the, the tasseled wobble gong? or a spider called the sparkle muffin, or there's this fish called the spiny lump sucker. See, see, God was completely capable of naming every animal and just giving Adam a dictionary so he could keep track of everything, but he didn't. He made room for, for Adam's creativity, allowing him to create, and allowing Adam himself to be the one who speaks something out of nothing. Andy Crouch, who is this American journalist and a Christian thought leader, he said it like this. This is beautiful. He said, to be clear, God provided the raw materials, the garden, the animals themselves, and Adam's very breath. But now the creator graciously steps back just enough to allow humankind to begin to discover what it means to be creator. Adam, like his master, will be both gardener and poet, both creator and cultivator. The creator simply watches and listens, and it is good. Okay, so to recap all of that that I just said over the last few minutes, God creates humankind in his image. As creative beings, he places them on the earth and he tells them to rule over creation, to make culture. God's creation starts as a garden in Genesis chapter 1. But his plan, his, his game plan, his long-term drawn-out plan was always a garden-like city. And his way of achieving that end was in partnership with his creation, to give humanity creative license to to use the natural resources of the earth to make something spectacular. God's inviting humanity to to join him in his culture-shaping, city-building team. And that includes you. And that includes me. That includes us. God created each of us on purpose, with a purpose, And he's gifted you with unique talents and interests and ideas. And he placed you in this specific country, in this specific city, 
in the neighborhood that you find yourself in to participate with him in his cultivating work. He's actually inviting you to participate in building culture and beauty in the city where you live. For most of us, right here in Port Moody. And if that's true, then, then what you do with your time is not meaningless. It's actually incredibly important. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 gives so much meaning to our work. To what we do 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, or whenever it is that you do what you do. I, live, I love Tim Keller's definition of, of work and what we put our hand to. He said it's rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. But what I've noticed is that sadly, most people don't see their work that way. Most Christians don't even see their work that way. I think most Christians see their work as just a means of getting a paycheck so maybe they can buy a home put food on the table, possibly give 10% of their income to the church, support a missionary from, from time to time. And all those things are good things. But it's also a very limited and incomplete view of something that most people are going to give 90,000 hours of their life to doing. To repeat Tim Keller's definition, what, what, what work is, it's this opportunity to rearrange the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. It seems a lot easier for, for people to, to connect church work, pastoring, leading worship, being a missionary, you know, traveling overseas to, to expand. You know, it seems much easier to see that as participating in God's plan and purposes for creation than it is to, to, to see the role of a dentist or a barista or a city planner or a cabinet maker as somehow joining God in his renewing work on the earth. And so oftentimes we built up these sort of secular, sacred divides. Preaching and prayer and youth ministry and church planting, that's sacred. While, you know, building architecture and fashion and, and nursing and construction, that's secular. But we don't see any of that distinction in Scripture. Jesus spent the majority of his life, of his 33 years on, on the planet, he spent the majority of that time as a carpenter. You know, Paul the Apostle, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, was described as a tent maker. See, I, I absolutely believe that God calls pastors and, and leaders to be, to be, sorry, he calls men and women to be pastors, to shepherd the, the flock, to lead the community of faith. But I also believe that God calls doctors and, and he calls business leaders and artists and architects to cultivate the earth, creating great art and music and, and skyscrapers and medicine. Let me say this, the work that I do as a pastor is, is no more spiritual or sacred or pleasing to God than that of a first grader who's teaching a group of students to read. That's the truth. Now, of course, there's, there's good work and there's bad work. There's work that's good for the earth and that's good for humanity and for civilization. There's work that brings glory to God. And then there's also work that's destructive to humankind. It's destructive to the, to, the, to the economy and to the family and to the developing world. There's good work and bad work, but I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that all good work is God's work. That you can absolutely be living into your identity as an image bearer of God when you do your work, whatever it is, but when you do it for the good of others and for the glory of God. John Mark Comer, who's a pastor and an author in Portland, Oregon, he said it like this. He said, we're all called to make a garden-like world where image bearers can flourish and thrive, where people can experience and enjoy God's generous love 
a kingdom where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, where the glass wall between earth and heaven is so thin and clear and translucent that you can't even remember it's there. So, so whether it's building spreadsheets or, or filing taxes or making an incredible latte or taking customer service calls or designing homes or making advances in science and medicine or maybe it's staying home with your children, changing diaper after diaper after diaper <laughs> or maybe it's making a leather bag or a beautiful piece of furniture with excellent craftsmanship. When you do these things, you're living into your identity as an image bearer of God. And you're fulfilling the cultural mandate that God gave Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it with his presence. Whereas Meredith Klein paraphrased that whole piece, building cities. See, these are all culture-shaping activities. When, when, when you build or create or teach or make art, you're cultivating the earth. You're taking those raw materials that God made and you're, giving, you're, you're making something of value. So to bring that all back to cities... It's actually in cities where you can most easily see that kind of culture-shaping work that God's called us to. In a lot of ways, cities are kind of like a microcosm of a larger society. They're this cultural mining or, or a developmental center of sorts. Or, or you could think of a city as this very powerful magnifying glass that draws out whatever's in the human heart and puts it on kind of full display for everyone to see. Why? Well, even just by nature of, of density and, and, and diversity of the city, it brings out the best of society, but then it also brings out the worst of society. It, it attracts the high achiever and, and the incredibly talented and the best of the best in every industry because in the city, you have the highest chance of achieving your dreams. And so large groups of like-minded people, extremely skilled people who are given to their skills and their craft, they congregate in the city and then they push each other to become the very best at what they do. Those people were always in the larger society. They were always in the suburbs or the rural areas. But as they congregate together in the city, you begin to see this sort of incubator, this sort of kind of yeah, incubator for cultural development. And so the best and most beautiful parts of society are on display in the city and then also, the worst parts. See, if we jump back to Genesis, where we started this morning, it doesn't take long after God gives humanity this assignment to make culture and cities. It's only 30 verses later that sin enters the world. It begins to corrupt God's good design, including his beautiful plan for work and for the cultivation of human society. Something that was meant to be marked by joy and fulfillment would become hard and burdensome. And, and God's plan for humans to rule and have dominion over the earth would take this very dark turn as sin penetrates the human heart and impacts every sphere of society. You probably know the story. If you've grown up in church, you certainly have heard it before. Genesis chapter 3, where, where Adam and Eve eat from this, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and the whole idea there, the reason God told them to steer clear of this tree isn't because if they ate from the tree, they would somehow know the difference between good and evil. And for some strange reason, God didn't want them to know the difference. No, that's not what it was about. The reason God told them not to eat from this tree is because it was for them about defining morality for themselves, apart from God himself. And, and humans have been doing this exact same thing ever since, taking the, the, the shaping of right and wrong away from the author of life, the one who designed and created and trying to create for themselves a moral code and compass. And so history shows us that humans are responsible for some amazing advances in society and culture, things like art and science and education and coffee and Handel's Messiah. 
and Takafino, but are also responsible for some horrible things, you know, like slavery and racism and the Holocaust and ISIS and the war in Ukraine and pornography and human trafficking. As we try to define what is right and wrong apart from God, our society drifts to some pretty dark places. So while the best of culture is, is on display in this city, so are the worst parts of society. And, you know, we know this. Intrinsically, we know this. All you have to do is walk a few neighborhoods from, from in Vancouver through a few different neighborhoods. You just walk 10 steps outside of the edge of Gastown, and you go from penthouses and brunch joints and craft beer on tap to extreme poverty with homes made of six-foot tarps and sidewalks filled with shopping carts turned into portable storage units and people desperately looking for cash so they can just survive one more day and buy whatever it is that will make their current state of life a little bit more bearable. See, see, cities didn't invent pain and addiction and mental health challenges and poverty. No, sin has corrupted every fabric of society. These things existed in the suburbs too, but cities are this sort of magnifying glass that exposed the best but then also expose the worst of this culture that we've built. Genesis chapter 11, it marks the first biblical record of a city. Um, you, you might know this story as the Tower of Babel. In short, the, the leaders of this city have this idea to build this hugely tall tower. They say in verse 4, Come, let us build this, ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. So I, I think this is worth noting. Their objective in building this city, their objective wasn't just to build a city for themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. They wanted to build a tower that would reach the heavens. Okay, what's the deal with that? What's that all about? See, the separation between heaven and earth had been this good gift from God for creation. The separation made humans dependent on God, on him coming down to dwell with them. They were reliant on him. They were reliant on the very author of life as their source. But in building this really tall tower that, that, that would reach the heavens, the idea was that it would give them the vantage point of God and it, it would enable them to, to take matters into their own hands, to give them more power, essentially to turn themselves into God. So again, just like we saw in the tree in, in Eden, humans are making this declaration of independence from God, a defiant human effort to deal with the world. If they could just build a, a tower that was tall enough then they wouldn't need God anymore, or so they thought. And again, this, this desire to play God led them to some pretty dark places. And so sin continued to run rampant in the world. And we see its effect on every page of Scripture. It brings division and pain and brokenness and corruption. But through it all, and we see this again all throughout Scripture, we see that through it all, God never gives up on his creation. Though they continue to run astray, he continues to show them grace upon grace upon grace, grace and mercy in story after story. And it climaxes in the incarnation of Jesus, where instead of casting judgment on the earth as maybe they deserved, he comes. God comes as one of us. As Eugene Peterson wrote, God put on flesh in the person of Jesus and he moved into the neighborhood. You could say he moved into the city to be among them. And as he lived, he became this kind of archetype of a new humanity, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus, was victorious. And he taught us what it looked like to be fully human, to be fully alive. He gave a glimpse of what the kingdom of God really looks like. And after living that perfect life, he died on a cross. Three days later, rose to new life, and in so doing, he broke the curse of Satan, sin, and death once and for all. 
the kingdom of God was inaugurated in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And, and yet we live in the, the middle of the now and the not yet, the, the age that is and the age to come. There's sort of these two realities. And if, if you live in the world, you know that, that yes, it's been inaugurated in the finished work of Jesus, that there is good and beauty that's, that, that comes from the earth and from the world, but there's also pain and hardship. Okay, why do I mention all of this? Why bring sin into this conversation about cities and culture and work? Well, because here's the thing. Here's where it comes full circle. While the world has been fractured by and broken by sin, Jesus invites us, his followers, his new creation, to join him in his putting the world back together project. To, to participate in redeeming the world as, as he restores and renews all things. And this isn't just some theological idea that has no application in the real world. No, you and me, us, we're invited into God's mission to renew the earth, to prepare the world for the rule and reign of King Jesus. And, and the vision we get of, from, in scripture of life after death of our future hope is not a picture of, of a spiritual universe that's in a galaxy kind of far, far away. Um, when I was a kid, I, I watched a movie called Left Behind. Has anyone else ever seen this movie before? Uh, it essentially scared me into becoming a Christian, and, and maybe that's not all bad, um, but, but I was terrified. I'd wake up in the middle of the night just hoping that my parents hadn't been taken, taken away and I wasn't left here in this home by myself. And, but, but that's not the picture that we actually see on the pages of Scripture as, as the end, as what's to come. We don't see, see humans being taken away from the earth and going to some galaxy far, far away. No, instead, on the pages of Scripture, what we see is heaven coming down to earth. And there's lots of mystery around what the future looks like, what eternity with Jesus looks like. But what's pretty clear in John's vision of eternity, which is in Revelation 21 and 22, I'd encourage you to look at it later, but is that, that eternity doesn't take place in a galaxy far, far away. The biblical vision of eternity is not of Christians being taken away from the earth and going to heaven, but instead a vision of heaven coming down to earth, eternity takes place here. And it's described as a city, a garden-like city. A new heaven and new earth that's joined together as a single whole where, where God's presence dwells with us, where there's perfect peace and hopefully a lot of sunshine like we're experiencing right now. In John's vision in Revelation 21 and verse 5, Jesus says, he says this about our future, about the age to come. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. What a beautiful phrase. It's only very recently that I caught a super important nuance of those words from Jesus. See, he doesn't say I'm making all new things. He says I'm making all things new. See, he's restoring and perfecting all things. But he's not starting from scratch. He's not wiping the slate clear and starting again. He's renewing and rebuilding that which has been destroyed and corrupted by sin, and he's preparing it for his bride, the church. The renewed city, it doesn't have any tears, and there's no mourning, there's no disease, there's no abuse or pain or poverty or death. They've all been done away with. But the things on this earth that are good and right and beautiful they will last into God's future reality in the age to come. N.T. Wright, who's a, a British scholar and theologian, he said it like this. He said, what you do in the present by painting and preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, will last, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last in God's future 
These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little bit less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it all behind. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. By such labors, you're not oiling the wheel of a machine that's about to roll off a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into a fire. No, you're, you're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You're strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. And, and as N.T. Wright noted in that quote, there's so much mystery in it all. But for me, I find this great hope in knowing that God has made me in his image. And he's called me to participate in his renewing work, that, that what I do matters, that what I do right now has profound meaning. And as I build in this world and do the things that God has called me to do, that I'm building for God's future kingdom. So maybe I'll say this. When you get up tomorrow morning and you jump on the sky train, or you get in your car and you head to work. Or, or maybe before that, when you make dinner tonight and you, and you eat and you drink with friends or with family or community group, as you love and as you serve and as you work and, and you, as you teach and as you fight for justice, as you love, as you create spreadsheets and plant flowers and build businesses and treat patients, you are joining King Jesus in his renewing work, in his, you might call it, putting the world back together project. And the things that you do with him and the things that you do for him will in some strange and profound way find themselves in the city of God in the age to come. Okay? Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll go from there. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, this beautiful truth. This beautiful example that we see in cities of culture and, and the things that you've called us to, how our work actually has meaning. I pray that you would help us that to seek, seep deep into our hearts. That we would see the things that we do day to day, whether seemingly spiritual or whether seemingly mundane, that we would see those things as joining with you, partnering with you in the renewing work that you're doing on the earth. Would you help us to, to be people who, who bear your image well, who mirror you to this world, to this city, who join you in bringing beauty and renewal to Port Moody and the surrounding communities. We do all of this in response to who you are, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash rail city to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the rail city campus of CA Church.